0: Open your Bibles again, please, at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. In our introductory message on baptism, we've already considered (coughs) those uh, great general truths concerning baptism as outlined in our own Confession of Faith, chapter 28. And we also consider together our own FPC constitution, which gives liberty of conscience to members concerning certain aspects of baptism. So the sixth article of faith rightly points out that the controversial aspects of baptism centres around the mode and the proper subjects of baptism. Now there should be no controversy really on baptism. And we believe that this controversy has unnecessarily divided the body of Christ when it should have been united. And so, Article 6a states, in light of this, each member in conscience shall have liberty to decide which course to adopt on these controverted issues. So, which are the issues? The mode and the proper subjects on baptism. Will you all agree with what I say? I don't think so, but I'm going to share with you what. Uh, I believe I ought to say, any road. Each member, the uh, Article 6a tells us, is to give due honour and love to the views held by differing brethren. Over the years, I have found that honour is given so long as it's my view you're honouring. But I want you to see something different. Because if we are are true to the spirit of Article 6a, well then we will even give honour to a view that we don't share personally. When it comes to adult baptisms, uh, many Christians only think about immersion, or as the Confession of Faith describes it, as dipping. The early Baptists were known as dippers, and I acknowledge, of course, that it's a view widely held by many of our ministers and many of our members. And, of course, whilst it's proper for all to follow their conscience, I, I want to just expand upon that view. I don't want you to think that's it's the only view, because there are other views. And I want to caveat what I say. I have no issue with the mode of dipping or immersionism have taken part in many such uh, baptismal services over the years, and I, I pray that the Lord will give me many opportunities up ahead to take part in such uh, services again, but for the sake of fairness and for the sake of faithfulness to what our confessional standards uh, teach is, remember the confessional standards, how it is outlined in chapter twenty eight and elsewhere is how we understand the teaching of the Bible, there are other legitimate modes of baptism. Now, I have repeatedly covered this in our membership classes over the years. So, to you, to those of you who have been brought into membership in recent years, this is nothing new. But it is worth sharing again in the public services because it does have a, a practical outworking uh, and as to how we here in Annalong would conduct baptismal services, if we accommodate different modes of baptism, well then it would be quite legitimate for us uh, to carry out some of those modes here in Annalong, where we couldn't do uh, if we wanted to go down just one particular route. So amongst conservative evangelical Christians, there are three accepted modes of baptism. I have read in the past few weeks that there are many variations on this. So within those three modes, there's maybe 20 different variations on it. But I just stick to the confession. Uh, And the confession in chapter 28, section 3 says, dipping of the person into the water is not necessary. But baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. So there are three modes of baptism. Remember the mode is just how uh, the sacrament of baptism is performed. And the confession mentions immersion, which is dipping. It mentions pouring. Another name for pouring is effusion. And it mentions sprinkling. Uh, another name given to that, to that is aspersion. Now, I did post a link on the church's uh, WhatsApp uh, page, the, the, the group of Dr. Benjamin Warfield's paper on the archaeology of the mode of baptism. I find that a very fascinating read. History has always engaged me and I've always loved history. And it's interesting to read that the original Baptists did not immerse. The first English Baptists who succeeded from the Puritan immigrants to New England they baptised by effusion, by pouring. And it would seem that it was not to the 17th century that the English Baptists first declared immersion or dipping to validate baptism. And they uh, held uh, this they held to be an earlier custom and a with the variation of a single baptism instead of a triune immersion. What do I mean by triune immersion? When we say baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they would put the person in and out of the water three times. So every time they would say Father in, Son in, out, Holy Spirit in, out. That's what they called a triune immersionism. Or even a triune baptism when it comes even to infants, it's just the same way done. Uh, uh, The water is poured on the, the, the person three times. Now, I love history because history shows us all of the quirks and exposes all of the pretensions of what people like to think of apostolic succession and purity when it comes to baptism. So, in our own denomination, that liberty of conscience is embedded uh, to the mode and to the subject of baptism, the reality is, of course, great men of God in bygone generations have disagreed all over all of these different issues. So it shouldn't surprise us, amongst Free Presbyterians, <coughs> that there are different views held on this subject as well. I personally believe, brethren and sisters. It would be very hard to prove conclusively from the Scriptures one particular mode of baptism above another. And I'll tell you why. Because I believe the proof is infer- inferential. So it's an inference. It's not a direct teaching. And I want to, to show you some of that today. But I do believe, and, I, and I'll stand on this, I do believe that the Scriptures teach that none but a minister of the gospel has a right to administer the sacrament of baptism. We have many self-appointed people in evangelical circles across our land today and they have no authority from any church body, none. And they take it upon themselves to baptise young people believing that they have a right to do it. Remember the Lord Jesus in the Great Commission he authorized his apostles to make disciples his apostles to baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. Now some churches and some individuals in history have taken from that that there's a threefold application of the water in baptism. There are some churches so the church is divided into the west and in the east in Europe and there are some churches in the east even when it comes to infant baptism they actually immerse the children and they take the children and they baptise them one, two, three times in and out of the water And, and so there's great variations in this so when people said to me about this and this happens here too when people said to me about this threefold uh, application of baptism, I just simply answer: But there's just one name. It's in the name of. We're baptizing in the name of the Triune God. There's just one name, but within the one person, within the one essence, there are three persons: the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In section two, it says the outward element. To be used in the sacrament is water. Chapter 28 section 2. Wherewith the party is to be baptized. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. By a minister of the gospel. Lawfully called there unto. I, I do not believe. In a hierarchy of, of ministers. We're a Presbyterian church. But I do believe. That it's only a minister of the gospel. Lawfully called. And. Uh, lawfully ordained and set aside in a local congregation that has the right to perform uh, this ordinance of baptism. <clears throat> now, I'm not going to try and prove to you the legitimacy of one mode above another mode. That's not my, my point today. But I just want in so doing to show to you if we consider all three of these modes, it will be necessary to examine why one mode cannot exclude the other two. So all three of them to me are acceptable. But obviously circumstances might command one more than others at various times. So we'll come first of all to <coughs> dipping our immersion. Dipping our immersionism. Now, Chapter 28, Section 3 says, Dipping of the person into water is not necessary. Those within our denomination, who of course uh, hold exclusively to immersionism for them as the only mode of baptism, can rightly claim this as a conscience clause (coughs) based on Article 6a. Yet they do not make it a point of fellowship, nor do they make it a point of membership. For example, we do not believe in rebaptism. So, a minister or a session would not require someone to be rebaptized who was not immersed as they do in Baptist or in Brethren circles. If someone comes with a real conscience about this and they believe their, their baptism prior to where they are at that point is not valid, that's a different story. But I would never ask anyone to be re baptised. Immersion in and of itself it raises some questions about how the water of baptism should be applied to the person, and I want you to think of this just for a little moment. Should a person uh, be immersed, applied to the water, or should the water be applied to the person being baptised? And there's a huge difference if you think that through. <coughs> Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn, and I quoted him the last message. He has a new commentary on the confession, and I would commend it to you, uh, published by the Banner of Truth. He wrote the following. The Westminster Assembly did not want to exclude dipping as a mode of baptism or to deny that those who have been immersed have a valid form of baptism. Nevertheless, the assembly summary of biblical teaching is clear, both when it says that dipping of the person into water is not necessary and when it states that baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. So in summary, the framers of the confession, they, didn't exclude, they did not exclude dipping, immersionism, but they did say it's not necessary. to validate validate one's baptism. And I think that is one reason why I didn't end up holding solely Baptistic immersionist views on the mode of baptism. The word baptism does not imply one particular mode. I want you to know that. There are many authorities. I am no Greek authority, but there are many authorities on it. Hodge gives us the meaning of the primary word which is used to convey the command to baptize. The primary word occurs four times in the New Testament in Luke 16 24, John 13 26, (coughs) Revelation 19 13, but never in connection with the subject of Christian baptism. So, first of all, it means to dip, secondly, it means to die. And thirdly, it means to wash by pouring. On the other hand, those who hold to this exclusive, uh, immersionist view of baptism, they teach (coughs) that the New Testament Greek word baptizo, which is translated as baptize, means only to dip or to immerse. And therefore, they claim, rightly so, following their own interpretation of the passage that the person must be fully immersed. However. The scripture proofs that are given in the confession. <clears throat> they indicate that baptisms often involve a little water. Rather than a large amount of water. So the Bible never quantifies the amount of water. It's the water that is emphasized. Not the amount of it. So turn with me just to a few passages please turn with me to Mark 7. Mark 7, we'll read from verse 1. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots brazen vessels and of tables now the word that is used here for wash, it means baptized so this baptismal washing was in reference not only to the washing of the hands <clears throat> but also to the cups the pots the brazen vessels and the table so there's nothing in this passage uh, to suggest that the word means only immerse or to dip the Jews yes they ceremonially washed their hands. And they made such a big uh, issue out of that. And undoubtedly uh, for uh, a for, for cleanliness purpose they washed their utensils. But I don't think they immersed the couch or the table. <coughs> as is noted here. They poured water on them and they washed it. We read from Acts 2 verse 42. If you go there just for a little moment. Acts chapter 2. Verse 41, they that gladly received his word were baptized. Verse 42, about those who were baptized, (coughs) there were 3,000 of them, then they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, etc. (coughs) It would have taken a large amount of water to immerse 3,000 people. I have been in baptismal tanks when maybe 15, 20 people were baptized. And the first person who came in, it was very easy. And there was plenty of water in the tank. But by the time you got to the last person that was coming out of the tank, that person had to go down very, very low. Because uh, the other people had soaked up the water or had displaced the water from the tank. Now you imagine if there had been 3,000 people in the one tank, I tell you what would have happened they would have had to sprinkle them all at the end because there'd have been no water left in Acts chapter 16 verse 33 this is one of the great so-called proof texts that are that are given all the time I remember a minister or one of her own ministers uh, using this uh, same passage <coughs> to, to to educate me as he thought it about a proper baptism acts 16 verse 33. We read uh, about the Philippian jailer of his conversion in this passage. And uh, we read (coughs) that he took the, the same hour of the night that Paul and Silas and washed their stripes. And then we read, and was baptized. He and all his straight way. This is at midnight. And this brother tried to convince me that There would have been in his house a Roman bath, at least, or they would have taken them out to the baths at midnight, and he would have been immersed. Well, I would say to you, brethren and sisters, It is highly, highly unlikely that a mere jailer would have had a bath in the jail. It would have been highly unlikely that Paul he would have had the opportunity, and it's not even said in the passage. That he took Paul and Silas out of the prison. And brought them back into the prison. Down to a river or to a pool to get them baptized. I don't personally think he had access to such an amount of water. In Hebrews chapter 9. If you go over there please. Hebrews chapter 9. Remember all of these baptismal washings, they had uh, their foundation (coughs) in the Old Testament ceremonies. And we read in Hebrews 9 and verse 10, (coughs) which stood only in meats and drinks and in diverse washings, baptisms, and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. So verse 10 speaks of the various Washings or baptisms which symbolize what? It symbolize forgiveness of sins. We looked at that last time. Verse 19 to 22 reveals how this <coughs> symbolism was conveyed. Verse 19 to 22. Let's go there. Hebrews 10. Sorry, Hebrews 9 verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law... He took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people saying this is the blood of the New Testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry and almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding of blood there is no remission. How was the blood applied? It was applied by sprinkling. And if baptism teaches us about our forgiveness of sins. Here we have a very valid form of baptism. Therefore to sprinkle that individual. Or to pour that individual. I know those who advocate total immersionism. Will point to Romans 6. And we read here in Romans 6 and verse 4 that we're buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. <clears throat> On the surface, that seems a, a, a nearly a, a, a total proof text. But it has to be noted, of course, that the practice of burial in the early New Testament, it was very different to what we have in the Western world today. Corpses were, were uh, embalmed. They were wrapped with spices. They were placed in a cave. They weren't actually put into the earth. <clears throat> Remember the Lord Jesus, how he was buried. He was buried in a tomb. He wasn't buried in a grave six, eight foot underneath the ground. To reference is, of course made here to, to burial but it was a different type of burial and years after the skeleton remains had, had decomposed, <coughs> what was left was placed in a little small box and was then buried Total Immersionists they argue also from the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, they, they point from Mark 1 verse 9 to 10 of, of Jesus coming up out of the water or the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 verse 38 to 39. Where they both went down into the water and came up out of the water. But it could equally be argued that Jesus simply went down to the river. It was a place where people were baptized. It was not a reference to the mode. I always think of that Ethiopian eunuch <coughs> where he was at that particular time was a desert what he came to was just a watering hole. How he got into that watering hole and displaced it and, and, and uh, would have, in essence, made it very difficult for others coming behind to drink from it uh, is something that others will have to show to you. I couldn't show to you. In our own free Presbyterian church, we do have, within our own fraternity, we, we do have liberty of conscience. But I have to show to you <coughs> that if you hold to a sole immersionist view, it does not mean that your view displaces the other views. I think that is clear. When we say the practice of the church, uh, reading Dr. Warfield's uh, paper on the archaeology of baptism, <coughs> is divided, has divided the church, has divided the church into a western and an eastern mode. And broadly speaking, the east uh, baptises by triune immersion and the west by a a fusion. And this came to the fore really (coughs) at the time of of the great Protestant Reformation. If you read through the uh, the, the the history of the debates of the Westminster uh, divines. They voted on the legitimacy of immersion to be placed within the directory for worship. And they, they voted should it be recognised alongside a fusion or as an alternative mode. And of course it was a very narrow vote. I think it was by one. But it was in favour of a fusion. So it did not... a as it were set aside immersionism it didn't set it aside but it it recognised that the the preferred view was effusion and the closeness of the vote I think was in recognition if you read Warfield's Archaeology and Baptism it was in recognition of the earlier customs of the East of uh, immersionism so I think brethren and sisters we need to approach the subject humbly It's not as clear as some people want to make it out to be. We do not want to deny that a dipping immersion is a valid form of baptism. I don't want you to go away thinking that today. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But nevertheless, the assembly's teaching is clear that it's not necessary to be dipped in order to be properly baptized. I think that would be the summary of it. So the other two modes then are pouring or sprinkling. Pouring is a effusion. Those who hold to this mode of, of baptism, they, they speak of it as symbolizing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so it does. The uniform usage of both the old and the new is to the effect that the Spirit comes upon those are the subjects of his operations. Never once is there language that could be used to be construed uh, that the spirit's influence are such that the person is immersed in the spirit. Rather the spirit is poured out upon them. In Acts 1 and verse 5 Jesus promises his disciples <coughs> "Ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And we read of that notable day in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit of God was poured out poured out upon the people. And it was said in verse 16 to 18 this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh and on my servants and on my maidens and I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. We read in Acts chapter 10, verse 44 and 11, and verse 15, the Holy Ghost fell on them. They were not immersed in the Spirit; rather, the Spirit of God was poured out upon them. We read in Acts 10:45 that they of the circumcision, which believed, were astonished. <coughs> And as many as came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. So we're trying to connect all of this because baptism, as we learnt in our first uh, study, is a symbol of the workings of the Spirit of God. And God, the Holy Spirit, is poured out upon individuals. So therefore those who hold to pouring or effusion as a legitimate mode of baptism, they speak Likewise of the pouring the pouring of the Spirit of God out to remind us in baptism of what is happening. There are many other scriptures Isaiah thirty-two, fifteen, Proverbs one twenty-three, Titus three sixty feet Isaiah forty-three forty-four and three. It's not my purpose today to go through All of those references, I'm just stating, I'm stating what our confession states. These are legitimate modes of baptism. We could do it here at the front of the building. We couldn't do immersionism. If you want to be immersed, we'll have to take you elsewhere, as we have done. But we could do pouring here in the front of the building. And it would, in my opinion, and in the opinion of the session, would be a legitimate mode of baptism. The third mode that's spoken of is sprinkling. (coughs) And of course, those who hold to this mode of baptism, they say that it's a, a very appropriate way to symbolize the washing away of our sins. So pouring symbolizes the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the individual. Remember, without the Holy Spirit, you can't be saved. There's no salvation without the work of the Spirit of God in the heart and life in regeneration. That secret, mysterious work. Let's not minimize that. But then this third you note, know, the sprinkling, it, it represents a, a back again, as we said, from Hebrews chapter 9, in the Old Testament where the priest would take a bunch of hyssop member on the Passover and he would dip it in water or blood and he'd sprinkle the subject as part of that Levitical ceremony of cleansing. Now the ceremony in and of itself did not cleanse but it simply pointed to the cleansing of the great Messiah, the one who would come. David said in Psalm 51 and verse 7 Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, If he was thinking of the Passover He could have been well said, sprinkle me, sprinkle me with hyssop and I shall be clean. So if we consider sprinkling as a mode of baptism, I do believe it has scriptural merit. Now is there a difference between effusion and sprinkling? I think there's a very fine difference indeed. But both are legitimate uh, aspects of of baptism. When sprinkling is spoken of, (coughs) usually the, the individual is sprinkled on the face. And why is the individual sprinkled on the face? Because the face represents the whole person. Remember, uh, Moses said to Pharaoh, I will see thy face again no more. I'm never going to see you again, Pharaoh. The face represented the whole person. First Peter 1 and 2 tells us, We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. I think it would have been one of the most practical modes, either effusion or aspersion, pouring or sprinkling on the day of Pentecost. (coughs) Most parts of the Christian church, brethren and sisters, With the exception of Baptists and brethren, hold that baptism is valid by pouring or by sprinkling or by dipping or by immersionism. A. Hodge in his outlines of theology, and this was a great favorite with the late Dr. Cairns, he said, Baptism is essentially a washing with water. No particular mode of washing is essential. That might sound strange to some of you today who have been brought up maybe under a different type of ministry and he gives some reasons because no mode is specified in the command and two, no such mode of administration is essential to the proper symbolism of the ordinance. If we have and we do have liberty of conscience on this issue let us not use our liberty of conscience as an excuse to do nothing about it I believe in our our churches there are many who are not baptized and I want to address that young people who have grown up perhaps were dedicated as children and that's that's all legitimate I'm not in any way decrying any of that But young people have to come to a decision in their own hearts and in their own lives. That they too uh, need to be baptised. How old does a young person have to be to be baptised? I think just old enough to recognise and understand what they're doing. I don't see any age limits in the scriptures of truth. Different modes of baptism have been used in, in the broader church and yet some people, you have, you have all of this access here and on alone and in all of our sister congregations to baptism. And yet there are some people and they will die and go from free Presbyterian pews and meet the Lord of glory, never having been baptized. And to me that is such a contradiction of discipleship. I don't want the subject to be treated in some sort of academic manner if we really believe that pouring and sprinkling and dipping uh, are legitimate modes of baptism then let's put it into practice I will hold up ahead a Q&A session for those because I know what I've said over the past few weeks have raised many questions And I'll give you the opportunity to to put those questions at a later date. But seize the opportunities that God has given to you, young and old. Obey the command of the Lord Jesus Christ and be.